everybody, this is Townsend. I'm a singer, songwriter, musician, and mental health advocate, and I started the You're Not Alone project and podcast to help educate, spread awareness, and simply help you feel a little less alone, no matter what you're going through. Thank you so much for tuning in to Season 2 of You're Not Alone with Townsend. Be sure to click the follow button and share these stories. You can also watch the interviews on our YouTube under Townsend T Music. You can also keep up with the journey if you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Townsend T Music. Every like, follow, and share helps us continue to change lives. What is up, everybody? It is your host, Townsend. This week on You're Not Alone with Townsend. You've seen this face before. You've heard this voice before. It is Miss Raisha Clark, and I'm so excited. If you remember, if you listened to our last interview, we talked about how I wanted to have her back on to talk about her time in the service and just serving our country. Because if you don't remember, this lady is very well-rounded. She's not only a mental health counselor, she helps all these amazing people. Last time we talked about mental health with a minority. This time we're talking about uh, serving and coming back home and PTSD and just all of these things that I feel like typical civilians don't think about. And I feel like it is so important. So thank you for joining us again. I loved our last chat. Oh, well, I'm so glad that you even wanted me back. So oh, thank God, I you could so not much. wait, literally. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting because the things that you want to talk about, I really love talking about. So it just works out brilliantly. I love that so much. We had so much feedback, Gracia, about our last interview. One, everybody loved you. You're incredibly easy to talk to. And two, I feel like, you know, I think I text you this. I always try to keep my my guest updated on the feedback I'm getting. But I had so much feedback about how important that topic was about the minority culture and mental health. Because like I said, obviously, uh, in, in the majority. And so it's something uh, you pointed out so many things that i feel like I thought I was aware of and I definitely was not and I think my listeners found them in the same position because I no joke we'll get we'll get to our topic soon but no joke I had somebody reach out and say well I didn't listen to this week's topic because it doesn't relate to me and I said funny you say that um, you should listen to it because it relates to everyone. And I think there's some amazing points. So they ended up listening, coming back later and being like, oh my gosh, like I feel so almost ignorant for saying that. But yeah, it was amazing. If you haven't listened, go back and do that. I feel like there were such great points on that. Yeah, lots of nuggets in that one. And it it is not a me to my horn thing. It just is the beauty of talking about a perspective and then having the platform and someone willing to listen, you know, so there's a lot that can be learned if we just sit down and listen to anybody that we encounter, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, I'm not in that culture. So it's amazing to hear it. You feel like you're sensitive to other people until you actually dig deep and ask questions. And that's really hard to do. Some people are awkward doing that. So I am so excited to provide that platform and open these conversations because I feel like you're not going to sit down with a stranger and be like, so how's mental health and in your society? You know what I mean? That's hard. Yes. 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 So thank you for not only joining me once, but twice. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's hop in. So if they listen before, they already know this one, but let's reintroduce you. Who is Raisha? What is your title? Where might people find you? I want to personally thank you for taking the time to listen to these conversations. It truly means so much. 
We've changed so many lives for the better, and we want to continue doing so throughout 2023. This project is made possible by sponsors and patrons. So if you'd like to help keep the You're Not Alone project going and hearing these amazing stories, we would love for you to join the family at patreon.com slash Townsend T Music. Just for signing up, you'll get free merch, discounts, and behind-the-scenes patron-only footage. Not only of my music, but of each episode. That's right, so each guest on every episode answers a few more questions that only patrons will be able to watch and listen to. So head on over to patreon.com slash Townsend Team Music, and let's continue changing lives. Yes, so I'm Raisha Clark. I am a licensed professional counselor here in Little Rock. I have a small group practice that I'm super proud of where I do a lot of neurotherapy related work, meaning I use a person's brain to guide how I treat their symptomology. Um, I do talk therapy as well, but I really believe that the brain and the body really do tell us how to best help ourselves. And so um, I love, I I just, I love that. Um, Let me see. I'm a mama. I got three babies. They're 19, 15, and seven. My seven-year-old, a precious little thing. So the two oldest are girls, little boy. Um, I got passionate about serving in different ways for disability rights. And so I'm currently serving as the board president of Disability Rights of Arkansas. So that's something that I've done that just has opened my eyes to so much need just within Arkansas, you know, not even outside of our walls, but just within Arkansas, so much need. But um, let me see, for fun, I travel a What does Raisha do for fun, girl? travel a little I like I like reading I know it sounds so but give me a good thriller a a Tammy Hogue book you know she just writes these really great suspense books I can just get lost in a book for hours not a Kindle I want a book I want to smell the old pages and just and so I come up for air and the kids are like um are you are you cooking today I'm like oh (laughs) it's been two days mom yeah, yeah, come on back, come on back. So yeah, that is that is me in a nutshell, just a bubbly thing until I'm not. And <laughs> understand that there is a part of me that does not because it, there's nothing bubbly to be about. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally get it. That is so amazing. And I want to point out, I have so many people reach out to me wanting references and referrals and where can they go? Raisha's amazing. So if you are in the central Arkansas area, please reach out to my friend Raisha. She's amazing. She's so smart. Truly one of the most well-rounded people I've ever met. So I get calls all the time. So if you're, do you have spaces for new clients? Yes, as a matter of fact, so hiring another therapist really allowed me to light my caseload quite a bit. So they can find me online, um, www.thecollectivecounseling.com. Google me, Facebook me, it, it, it doesn't matter. We'll get you routed to the right place. I don't really know how to do Instagram. So I know that's the thing I'm supposed to say and my handle is. I'm somewhere on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. The website's the best way probably to do it. Shoot her an email or something. But yes, I always get people asking where to go. So Raisha, for sure, I would trust her with anything. So for the listeners that message me, hit this girl up. She's amazing. All right, you ready to hop in? Let's do it. Let's do it, girl. Okay, 
So like we said earlier, last time we were on here, we talked about mental health in different cultures, specifically within the minority culture, which I loved so much. Girl, you had my brain racking the whole week, which I love a good challenge. I had myself, you know, challenging myself, like, what can I do better? How can I word things better? And it became a conversation with me and some listeners, just so cool. So I wanted to pick your brain about being in the service. And I wanted to touch more on that. So how old were you when you joined? And what made you want to join the service? Yeah, yeah. So I was 19 when I joined. I was a sophomore in college, going to school up at U of A. And uh, my older sister and her husband graduated. They're five years older. They graduated, got a job in Little Rock. And I found that I really did not want to be in school, period. Yeah. Right? Like, that's the thing. Like, oh, you graduate high school and you go to college. And, you know, I went where my sister was. I majored in what my daddy majored in. You know, no ratio drive desire to be in school at all. Right. Right. I meet a bow-legged boy that played basketball and I and, just thought I was in love. I messed around and told my daddy who he was. Why did my daddy call a friend of a friend and found out all of this stuff about this man's background? It was like, there's no way you can date him. Sorry. No, you can't. And I was like, oh, but I love him. My dad's like, oh boy, your daddy said, no, you don't girl. Yes. Yeah. So there was no strong desire to join the military. I really had no option. I was too bullheaded and stubborn to be at my parents' home. Did not want to continue to be in college. So it just so happens because of my, we graduated together. He had joined six months prior and he was home on break and was like, you should consider the army. You're fit, you know, your attitude, eh, they'll break you that. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I did. And I did not tell my parents. I had left them a note saying that I was declaring my independence. A week later, a week later, I really and truly was in basic training in South Carolina. They were paging me. So I had a beeper and they're like, you haven't been responding to your beeper? Like, what is going on? So on my first call, I'm like, hey, mom, dad, I'm in the army. I go, bye. And hung up. And that is, that is Raisha. Raisha, like, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Because of a bow-legged boy. Because oh. of a bow-legged boy. Oh, you stubborn, girl. Stubborn. Yeah. That I'm is sorta. funny. Okay, that was not the story I expected. That was fantastic. So how many years How many years did you end up serving? Yes, yeah, so I was active duty just a few weeks shy of 10 years. And so I joined at 19 and got out at 29. So it was a nice little run of it. Uh, it was good. It was good. Um, a lot of deploying, which ended up making it not so great because I had two girls at the time. So my girls were little at the time and leaving them was really hard. And so I just felt like I could I could do it better in the civilian sector than having to leave them 11 months at the time. Oh, yeah. my gracious. So I don't I cannot wrap my head around leaving children, period, but much less as the mother, the nurturer. You know what I mean? I can't imagine dads leaving just God, I'm a big old Rachel. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little secret. Don't tell anyone. All these people listening. I'm a big old chicken, Rachel. Okay, I am scared of my shadow at nighttime. Like, if you told me I was getting deployed, I would cry and not leave my mattress. I'd be terrified, terrified. Yeah. I do not understand how people like. I huge respect to those who serve, and I say that frequently. But gosh, I can't even imagine. So, where? What are what were your some of your deployments? Where were your locations? 
Yeah, primarily Southern Baghdad. And so that's that's where where we hung out quite a bit. Um, my unit from Fort Hood deployed there in late 05. And we got out, we got back right before Thanksgiving in 06. Wow, goodness gracious. Okay, Baghdad. That's that's what so were you active while any of this war stuff was going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were still in the thick of it. And so uh, my unit, when I actually got there in 2003 at Fort Hood, um, military folks will know this, but there are certain bases or installations that are considered rapidly deploying uh, installations. So that means they have crews there, Fort Hood, Fort Bragg, Fort Drum. They have a crew coming and going every three, six, nine months, right? So it just, you just kind of fall in line with these deployment cycles. And so when I got stationed at Fort Hood, um, the unit that I was serving with, they had just left. So I'm like, woo, yes, all right. I missed yeah. out on that one. I'm good. They come back, they reset for three months, and then I find out that I'm leaving with them on the next tour. And so, yeah, it was devastating. You know, my daughter mm-hmm. at the time, she was 18 months. And so I was just kind of like, I'm going to, because it was, again, my, my reason for joining wasn't patriotic, pa- patriotic. There we yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it was, it was pure need and necessity. I needed a meal. I needed a little money. I needed a safe place to stay. And so now I'm faced with, oh, this is what the military does. You know, like it was a lot to take in and make sense of. I really didn't have a choice, you know? And so, well, let me, let me back up and say there are choices. So I could have gotten out of the military because I was single at the time and I had a child. Um, I could have gotten pregnant, which some women will do. They will get pregnant to avoid deployment. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know. I don't, I didn't feel like any of those things really were what I was supposed to do. So deploying, you know, once I wrapped my mind around it, once I got my parents and my family on board, um, it it was a little easier to, yeah. no, it really wasn't easy. No, I was like, girl, explain, because I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Not so easy, but it was done. Can I yeah. just say that? You know, sure. like, it's not easy, but you just got to get her done sometimes. And that's kind of sort of what that was. Well, um, I cannot, I cannot imagine. Again, you know, before we hopped on here, we're talking about first world problems and just the things we take for granted. Like the fact that I have a bed to sleep on, the fact that I did not have to join the military because I did not have another option. What a blessing to anyone listening. I've actually chatted with several friends who were in the same boat as you. It was, I either don't have anywhere to go or I join the military and get payment. Somebody pays for my schooling later, you know, and if I get deployed, I get deployed. And it wasn't necessarily because they're just huge USA citizen, you know, like, yeah, I want to serve my country. That wasn't really what it was. And so it's interesting to hear that. I think, I think people think you go, you know, guns a blazing and waving your flag, but really it's a bunch of children that don't really have another plan. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that's one of the things that we could do for the civilians that don't quite know. People join for a host of reasons, right? And some of it is legacy. My papa, my daddy, my daddy's daddy's daddy. You know, I have military, my uncle, uh, my great uncle were both in the military, but none of that was part of my story. Their service didn't influence, you know, my choice to join. But then there's some people that 
really want to go for the college money. I could have cared less about the college money because I didn't want to be in college at the time, you know, so none of that made sense. I was not a motivator. Like I really did not want to abide by my parents' rules. I wanted to have someplace to go and not have to go and do a nine to five job. And then I get to the military and realize, oh, it's more hours than nine to five. What? So, so yeah, it, there's a lot of reasons why people join the military, but I often piggyback and say the armed forces are still a very elite group. Whatever a person's motivation was to join, they're still an elite group. Do you know the U.S. population, I think that has, that has served um, is roughly 8%. And then like active duty is less than 1% of the population. Well, I believe so, it. Sure. You know, when I say elite, I don't, nobody cares why a person did. The fact that they are or did sign up and agree, that is such a small, small percentage of people. And, you know, I, I want to talk about this a little bit later, but in the 80s, that percentage of veterans was closer to 20%. I think the really big decline was how our Vietnam veterans were treated. But, you know, oh, like I absolutely. said, absolutely. It would be a whole different podcast. That is, it, it's pretty devastating, um, their yeah. stories. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I love geriatrics. They are my passion. I think we can learn so, so much from them. And that's one reason I love talking about PTSDs particularly like any type of trauma coming back from the war, because I think just like anyone else, like we said earlier, I think initially waving the flag and wanting to serve your country, but my geriatrics that I've spoken with, they're like, no, we were terrified and we were children. And a lot of them lied about their age. You know, they're sitting by the TV waiting for their number to be called and how terrifying to be pulled out of your home and again, we can kind of talk about this later, but it talks about one thing that they've all said, you're almost put on a pedestal when you're serving, when you come home in your suit and you look so good and you are active military, people worship the ground you walk on. However, when you're sent back home and you're supposed to just, you know, you're done with your service and people just think, oh, you're supposed to become a civilian, the end. And that's it. People treat you just like another person. And that adjustment, I cannot fathom. I'm so glad that you brought this up because it is an adjustment. It is a significant adjustment. One is the one that you just stated, having so much clout when you're active duty, showing your active duty card here for discounts or in your uniform, whatever the case may be. Little kids coming up to you just in awe of you. And then none of that right I suffered the most I think with with transitioning from oh my goodness why don't young adults want to work I know that sounds bonkers but for a minute you got to remember I I came in the army at 19 and I spent my young adulthood to 29 those formative years in a very structured, regimented place, right? So if a time was set, a time was set, if your job is this, and these are your job descriptions, you do this, and that's the expectation, you know, you're going to do these things. And so to come home, I remember so clearly going to Walmart, and a checker was so rude. She was ringing up my things back in the day when we had humans ringing up our things. Yeah, that. What's that? Walmart. <laughs> yeah, what in the world is What's that? What's that? What's a checker? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, she was she was so bothered. She was so disgusted. Just in the moment of doing that, I just was like, if you don't like your job, why are you doing this? Like it was really hard for me to understand. Like your job is to greet people. You come in the door and their greeters just look at you. I'm like, well, you're not greeting me with that scowl on your face. Yeah. The most simple of things. However, many of us that come back and are adjusting think these things like, where is the discipline? Where is the structure? If if you say your your store opens at 11 a.m., why is it 11.07 and I can't get in yet? Super simple. No one really cares about the seven minutes. It's just the fact that I had the expectation that you were going to do what you say you're going to do, right? And that's open at 11. I couldn't explain that for the longest time. My parents were just like, okay, so uh, a little hypersensitive, huh? And I'm like, no, I just want the store to open when it says it does. And so that adjustment comes with your family. You know, they're recognizing a new person. I mean, they're seeing new characteristics, things they may or may not ever disclose that they see changing you. I mean, the adjustment is, is pretty significant. Oh, I cannot imagine it. I feel like, so I had a gentleman on here, it's probably been about a year ago, and we spoke about PTSD coming back as a father, and one of his kids was born when he was deployed, and he came back home, so you spend your time overseas under these incredibly stressful times, and I mean, quite literally seeing friends get shot, and then you come home and you have to adjust to the dad role and the husband role and the, you know, you don't have a schedule because you have crying babies and the PTSD will just push that aside because now you're a dad. I mean, just the amount of pressure put on you guys when you come home, I can't, I can't even imagine. So I don't even know how, where to go with that question. Like, I guess mine would be, what is my biggest question would be, what does mental health care look like for soldiers and veterans when they come home? Is it provided or is it just like, yeah, good luck becoming a typical civilian? Yeah. So it's gotten much better. Um, I've, I've been out, you know, 13, yeah, 13 years now. It's gotten much better. What I want to wind you back to are when you, when these service members come home from the deployment. Mm-hmm. So whether active duty or not, there's still a period of time that you come home and you're doing what they call a reset. You're getting equipment cleaned up, all this other good stuff. Well, normally during that time, there are outbreathings talking about, you know, here are some concerns. If you see these symptoms in yourself, you know, let us know, let your chain of command know. But the unspoken thing is, don't you dare say you're depressed, that you're bothered, that you're having nightmares because that impacts your career, that impacts your promotions, that impacts your ability to have a weapon. If you can't have a weapon, you can't deploy. If you cannot deploy, what good are you to the military? So then you run the risk of getting kicked out. And some people who did not join because of legacy, you know, for a variety of other reasons, they need to stay in. And so they never disclose that they're struggling. So you have a lot of suffering in silence. So when we see the suicide rates of veterans, it's many times the programming. uh, And and again, it's not spoken. It's just what we see happen. You see your peers go through this thing. They're the one that said something. And then this negative thing happened to them. And so, you know, it's just kind of embedded that it's, it's not okay to not be okay. 
you better act like it you better fake it you know right then you transition out of the military and so not only do you have a lot of veterans that have not dealt with their deployments or even just the things that have happened if they never even deployed just the things that happen while being in the military period a lot of different traumatic experiences can happen all the mass shootings that have been happening on military bases, right? You know, there's been three or four since I've been out and I'm just thinking, yowzas, that's not a deployment. That is right around the corner. And so you have these veterans that are getting out, not really having a chance to unpack any of their stuff while they were serving. And then they go to the VA. The VA is a wonderful resource. And I tell people all the time, I didn't get the best when I got out. However, they are still an amazing resource. So the VA is an amazing resource, but we get out and the VA at the time would give you options. So you can do group therapy or you can wait until we find you a provider. Okay, well, I I guess I'll go to group therapy. So you go to group therapy and then if it's not very well ran or facilitated, you have a lot of people sharing their stories. Some of it is to see whose story is the worst and none of it is therapeutic. Right. So we're just re-injuring these injured bodies every single time we come to a group. And then if you actually just want to wait for the therapist, which could have been anywhere from three to six months, you get one, you run the risk that I did, and the therapist not really believing your story. Mm. So, you know, when you have a female combat veteran come back and go to the one safe place that's supposed to be for them, that's the VA hospital, the VA healthcare system, and you you meet a provider that is a female as well, but doesn't have any military experience. And she tells you, I hear what you're saying, but I just, gosh, I, I just don't see women having to do that. I remember feeling like the one time I was ready to share and be vulnerable, I, I immediately was met by a young white woman with her fancy degree and badge on telling me mm, you're lying. Whoa. Complete shutdown. Townsend. Oh, I bet. Shutdown. So that becomes my story of rugby. So that became my outlet. That became my place to feel because I could be out on the pitch and be around people that had this undercurrent of, I don't know, aggression, Really, I realized, no, they're actually really normal. It's me with the undercurrent of aggression. Um, But it was a safe and legal way to harm people. And I want people to hurt. To knock people out. Yeah, you picked the two things I'm most terrified of. Serving in the military (laughs) and rugby. Like, I don't know if you've seen my build. I'm shaped a little bit like a pencil. And so I've been to a rugby game. And those are some tough people. Like, oh my God, Rachel, I can't believe that. That is why I know we touched on it very, very briefly on the last episode. The woman, you know, you, you finally go to therapy. I can't imagine how you felt. So where I know you went to rugby to get those, you know, the physical, just I'm pissed at the world, whether you realize that's what it was at that time or not. Did you ever find a healthy way to outlet that? Yes. So what um and and this is why again the va wasn't great in that initial moment but they do have other resources and so i was coming for 
Um, so a lot of times too, when you get out and you go to the VA, they want to get a baseline of your health at that time, right after you get out. Right. So mm -hmm. I was going to a baseline appointment and, um, one of the RNs asked if I had been introduced to, um, the vet center. I was like, I don't know what that is. You know, I was really dismissive of anything, of anybody, what they had yeah. to say at this point. Yeah. And she was like, you know, you might actually appreciate this. Take this pamphlet. I, I said, no, I'm good. She was like, take the pamphlet. Yeah. I said, okay. So you said meet me on a rugby field. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. But there's something about the way that she said it. And and I think it's one of the blessings in disguise that she saw how much I was suffering and and saw in my chart that I had been to see a particular provider. And come to find out, Townsend, there had been other better complaints about this particular provider. Good. So it wasn't just me. So I really do, and it was never confirmed. I never saw the lady again, but I really do think she was exactly what I needed in that moment because the vet center was actually where I started to get my therapeutic services. Okay. Is a subset of the VA and they have therapists in there and they see them outside the VA center and they just can can really spend time working with the veteran, whereas in the VA hospital, the VA healthcare system, at the main hospital, it's the long, 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 long lines waiting to see somebody. It's the groups only. And so the vet center really was the first time I got to sit down and I had a therapist help me. Rachel, this is PTSD. It's like, uh, the lady at the VA said that I don't have PTSD. He was like, well, I... I don't know what she was looking at, but I can tell you that this is PTSD and you're in a good place to work on it if you're ready. Right. Oh, floored, tears, like, you see me? It's, it's okay, what? And so I, that journey was a year and a half of just coming and meeting and talking, coming and meeting and talking. I do a group here, do a group there, but it was just being seen, normalizing what PTSD is, because I got to tell you, we do a really good job throwing the word around yes. or the acronym around, but we don't really allow people to have the tools to know what that actually looks like. And so I have clients, it never fails. They'll come in and they'll tell me I have this and this and this diagnosis. I'm like, okay, let's put that right beside you. So I tell them to visually put that in the box right beside them. Tell me how those things show up in your life because you didn't come here because of a diagnosis. You came because of symptoms, right? And that really helped me to do was to see what are the symptoms that are showing up. We got to the part to where we started to do family interventions. He was just, he was like, you know, I would really love to see your family member's perspective on you and what they see. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good on that. They love me. <laughs> when I got we good. Home, Thank I, you, though. Yes. Well, and so it, it's curious because it started because I was running away from my parents' home. And then 10 years later, I'm running back into my parents' home. So I lived with my mom and dad for a year when I got out. And um, so, yeah, they were there for the rugby. They were, they were there for lots of hanging out, whatever. Um, but I remember my mom telling me once, because uh, she's been an RN for forever, but her first gig was as a psych nurse at the state hospital. Wow. And she was, she was like, Bird, I really, Bird is my nickname. She was like, Bird, I, I think something, I think something's a little off. I was like, well, what is off? What, what do you mean by that? She's like, well, you know, kind, kind of how you're acting now, you know, you, you seem tense. I'm like, well, 
you want to have this conversation is put me on guard. I'm ready for it. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. Let's just have the conversation. She was like, Take it down, bird. Take it down. (laughs) From a 10 to a 2. Let's calm down. Wow. Bring it back down. Bring it back down. And so when he when he was asking about, you know, my family perspective and bringing my mom in and my dad in, I really had no idea that they were seeing these things happening with me. And now that I have a 19-year-old, I I don't know how I I don't know why I thought that they would not know the people who know me the very best. I don't know why I thought whatever was troubling me internally, even if I didn't have the words, how they would not know. Right. And all of their attempts to turn in to me, turn in, turn in, meaning I'm attempting to soothe whatever's going on with you. But I was just like, nope, I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good. And I went to the VA and the VA told me that I've made this up. So I, I gotta be good. Right. All of this programming that I'm good, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm fine. And then finally to go to the vet center and have the therapist tell me, you have PTSD. Let's talk about it when you're ready. That was super helpful, super helpful. So for your listeners, I just, I wanted to give a little snippet about what PTSD can look like, especially yeah, in February. Absolutely. Because that's something that we miss. We think the only time to worry about a veteran is during the 4th of July, there's fireworks, right? But right. it gets a little more than that. Um, I, for one, PTSD oftentimes can show up primarily as feeling anxious or having depressed feelings. Those are many times how that will show up. Um, it becomes very unique when we start to have reoccurring thoughts and dreams and, you know, feel like we're re-triggered or reactivated around this thing. So it really is PTSD is like this one complex thing that happened to you. Uh, you keep going back to it, the different nuances of that really horrific thing. And there's now a differentiator, finally, it seems, that says, hey, a person can go through more than one traumatic thing and it bother them. So now we have the diagnosis of complex PTSD, which is just, I have more than one adverse thing that's happened to me that makes me kind of anxious, kind of depressed, and I get re-triggered and think about it, you know. So with veterans, you can hear, you know, anxiety and depression all day long. But what we might hear others around us say is, gosh, you're really sensitive. Ooh, you're really jumpy. Hey, did you really need to explode like that? You know, hey, uh, you keep looking at the door. Is everything good? You all right? You know, those little pieces of what hypervigilance is, is what we would therapeutically call it. When we start to see how hypervigilance shows up in these specific individuals, because it's not all the same thing, right? right? And so when we start to see how it shows up, instead of putting a label on the veteran or anybody really for that matter, but what it does, it kind of deposits into them, hey, maybe I'm not as self-aware about how I'm showing up as I thought I was, because that was my story. I really thought externally I had it together. No one knew, but really my friends, they were like, yep, you came back a drill sergeant. You've always been bossy, but boy, you can't. And I'm thinking I'm the life of the party. What? I can drink you under the table. I'm fun. They're like, eh, look crazy. I was like, no such thing as crazy, you know? So I'm hearing these things deposit, but I'm like, I'm not letting them stick. I'm okay. I got it together. They're just disillusioned. Yeah. But it was really me. 
Yeah. But until I could sit down and say that I was kind of struggling with some of these things, that some of these things were showing up as problems in my life that I wanted to say it was someone else's issue. And so that kind of goes back to depression, which my depressed symptoms showed up as aggression and irritability, but also that lack of motivation to turn inward. And so sometimes people that are depressed, they don't, they don't want to turn in. They don't want to feel. Some people say it's numb. Some people will say um, that, that they feel like they can't handle what could come up if, if they were to turn inward. So they just don't at all. But, you know, we know that scientifically emotions are energy. And when we are asking every day, because a person that is hypervigilant or that is struggling with PTSD their their hypervigilance creates these fearful or anxious or insert whatever emotion word they're they're creating that energy in their body and they don't have a place to release it so it just gets reabsorbed into the body and the body was like i bro i produced it i didn't ask to reabsorb yeah no way hold up (laughs) so so that 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 blow up that any little small thing causes this big thing is really just that energy having an outlet finally and so getting a hold on that is really really important but it has to be it has to come from a place that the person is ready and willing to look at themselves and then see how can I possibly navigate this world and with the right kind of help you'll the the person that's dealing with it will understand that it doesn't have to be today it just has to first be that look at myself, you know, turn it inward. So long winded, reel me back in. (laughs) No, I I am. I am in it to win it. I love it. Like I said, geriatrics are my passion and I keep going back, you know, the world wars were going on and they served and a story keeps popping up in my head. I had the, he was probably at this time, probably 88 or so. And he's talking about how he was in the service and how much pride he had that he served his country. And he would downplay all the things he saw. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine how that affected you. And he's like, not at all. I was serving my country. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. And then he starts bawling. He's 88, 89 years old. And he's like, I don't know why. Uh, no, uh. And he doesn't know why he's crying. And I'm like, you saw things. I feel like as humans, we're not supposed to see. And you pushed them aside and you pushed them down and never thought about it. It just, it's wild to me that we as a society expect people to just go back to work, be a civilian, be a mom, be a dad and get over it. Absolutely. It's just wild. I'm reading this. I I know you've read it. Every therapist I've ever met, but the body keeps the score. Absolutely. Girl, it talks Mm -hmm. about it at one point. I may get this wrong because it's been a little while since I read this, but it talked about how Nazi Germany banned and burned books, anything that talked about mental health regarding soldiers. Right. And it, it talked about something like if any soldier explained or verbalized any type of struggle, they would basically get in huge trouble and they'll say, you're just not fit. You're not a good soldier. And so they'd get reprimanded for being like, man, I'm really depressed. I'm having trouble. This is a lot. They'd be like, no, you're just not a good soldier. And so all these people, it ended up obviously being a terrible outlook and it ended up terribly. All the soldiers were just terribly uh, suffering with trauma later, but talked about the struggle with that and how that is not how that's supposed to go, but we've definitely been there. We've seen it. Yeah, 
Yeah. Time and time and time again, right. you know, and I'm telling you, it's kind of like this universal military mindset that, um, going back to the elite, there's only a small population of your general population that will do what you're doing. Right. So this you're above and okay, got it. So that means you cannot have any kind of weakness here because right. that weakness could be the detriment of your crew and your team that you're with. And so, yeah, really not being okay is not an option. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It uh, it also went on to talk about, which, again, I thought was incredibly interesting because I have heard these stories more, but the people that served the older generations, they were uh, terrified to say anything was wrong mentally. And so all those energies that they were packing up would show more as physical and so, you know, they'd have so much anxiety and depression that, you know, they'd have leg cramps, just unbearable. And they would do scans and they would do all these things and there was nothing wrong. And really, it was just their anxiety playing games on them, but they couldn't verbalize that because then it would affect, you know, their ranking or their career. So all these older generations that have all these physical ailments that we just couldn't figure out what was wrong when really their mental health was out of whack and they were terrified to say anything. So it ended up being all these terrible ailments that nobody could figure out how to adjust or how to fix. That's crazy to me. Like that is just so sad. Yeah. Yeah. We experientially stumbled across how autoimmune diseases can happen and manifest in some people. I mean, that is a perfect example of how that is. You know, when the body starts to attack itself because it doesn't know what in the world is going on with it because nothing is being addressed because that pent up energy, we see it now fibromyalgia. We see it now in GERD and Crohn's and so many different rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, there's so many different direct I say they're direct scientists will say there are some pretty strong correlations whatever bro you know it's indirect <laughs> you know don't lie you know <laughs> maybe on a rugby court exactly exactly you know it's just like no there there's a lot of science that suggests if we don't have our mental health in a good enough place to navigate everyday stressors plus the ones that we've already endured our body will start to physically break down oh right? absolutely it's, it's, Absolutely. Yeah. And we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about gentlemen at this time is only gentlemen in the older generation, but they're 89 and they are still having these physical ailments. Literally it lasted their entire life because they could not address it because it was not okay to dr- address it. And I feel like uh, from the interview I had last year with the guy that was in the service, it sounds as though we're making strides slowly, not as quickly as we'd like to, but it sounds like the service and the military is doing better is that true yeah yeah yeah, absolutely still lacking i think our world war one two korean war veterans um didn't have much of a voice they just kind of dealt with it wasn't really until the vietnam war that there was so much political unrest with with how the war why we were even in the war and then the service members coming back and just how the world did not rally around the Vietnam veterans that the VA saw that, okay, we got to do something different. Like this, this isn't working. And they started to see the studies, how these veterans were committing suicide at a greater rate than any population of veteran had ever done that they were doing any kind of psychotropic drug at any rate higher than any, any former uh, veteran that had served in combat. So 
the Vietnam veterans, they were our catalyst, I will say, to shift in a direction that was veteran focused. Prior to that, though, not not so much. So my generation of combat veterans, which I am very blessed that I had there are organizations that are just for my generation, which we will call OIF, so Operation Iraqi Freedom, OEF, Operation Enduring Freedom, so Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. That Gulf Gulf War group of veterans, so late 90s, you know, now still, but we are the recipients of all the services our former veterans should have received. And I, I don't take it lightly that the amount of care, the amount of nonprofit organizations that send us on retreats if we need to reset, the amount of resources that are there for us. And, and Townsend, we have to understand, Vietnam veterans are still alive now, Yes, right? They're seeing this. And I got to tell you, many don't take too kindly to it. We think, you know, brother and sister in arms, but they still have so much that they saw, could not talk about, still fighting, not only to prove that they were, you know, being impacted by Agent Orange, but to get the VA to even acknowledge that there was something that was going on with them, you know, because of the Agent Orange exposure. How many of their babies came out with deformities because of their exposure to Agent Orange and no one cared about that? And now you have this 30, 40 something year old veteran that has a whole organization sending them to a retreat for a week? What? You know, I kind of get it. I would hate on me too. I really would. Yeah. So it's been a rough go out of Townsend, but we, the VA system, society, and a whole lot of mouthy, these <laughs> new young activists, I love their audacity and tenacity because they're like, no, hear me. Now I want to see you change. Right. It is the efforts of folks rallying around and seeing that there needs to be change and how veterans are, are treated. It, it's, it's, it's a lot of that. It is oh, a lot of absolutely. that. Absolutely. I hadn't even thought about, you know, the older generation with the younger generation and being like, now I handled that by myself. Nobody helped me. You self-deserve, you know, just, I can yeah. totally imagine that. Like now they told me I wasn't a good soldier if I complained about anything, but here you are whistleblowing and yeah. I cannot imagine. Yeah. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Townsend, I do it now. I I see young service members now talking about this. And I'm like, there ain't no way. In my army, and, and you'll you'll have to say it. I was like, well, in my army, that wasn't allowed. That's that wasn't right. Allowed. So yes, it's kind of a generational thing that we'll see like the family dynamics, but I mean the culture of the military, yeah, we should be evolving. We should be growing. We should be the type of of a family unit, the military, that sees its weaknesses, grows, you know, past them, really lets the soldiers be the best well-rounded, safe, and healthy versions of themselves for the greater good of the mission. And we are seeing how that is happening over longitudinal studies, but it still doesn't mean that the soldiers in the moment are not struggling. Right. Mm. You can see systemic change, right. but it doesn't mean in the moment there's not struggles that are not addressed well in the military. That just eats me up to think about. Because again, 
I'm a big old chicken. So if it wasn't for y'all, they'd be shipping me off somewhere. And let me tell you something, doesn't anybody want me protecting them? I am not big. I am not bad. I am the worst. So I have huge respect, like I said earlier, for people willing to do it, whether that it was a patriotic you know, endeavor or not, the fact that you had the guts to do it is beyond me and amazing. So how can we as a society do better for veterans? What can we do to make that transition easier? Yeah, I think one of the big things, and and I go back to the 4th of July, because this recently happened to me. You know, I have people um, that are so kind that want to check on me on the 4th of July. This year was probably the best that I felt during the 4th of July, seeing um, fireworks and all of the stuff, hearing the loud booms and all that. It's probably the best that I have felt. Yeah, best that I have felt since getting out. The problem, though, is that while I felt good in the moment, my body told me a week later, oh, you're not okay. And so that's what I would love for civilians to understand is, there could be an anniversary of like, you know, Veterans Day, or it could be the 4th of July, but there are also anniversaries that you don't know about. When we were downrange and we lost our very first soldier and their face was put in our dining facility, right? Like there's an anniversary for that date for me. There are anniversary dates on when we were supposed to come home and did it. There are anniversary dates when our Black Hawk was shot at. You know, there's lots of anniversary dates. So you might not know what could be triggering us. And you think that the fourth or Veterans Day are days to see about veterans. And I'd say continue to do that. But if I don't show up well the next week, please don't berate me because you think I should be over the fourth. It was only loud that day. Yeah, well, my body is still feeling it a week later, right? And that was such an awakening for me, though, is just to understand that there's still work to be done. But that's not even my priority. My priority is acknowledging that, huh, that didn't feel so great. You know, it's not that I will avoid the fourth next year, but rather instead of looking like I have this damaged thing that is in constant repair, giving myself grace to know I have lots of wounds that could be repaired. You know, the the mindset and shift of how I see myself now, give my permission, give myself permission to see myself is so different from you're broken, you're so wounded, you're beyond repair. And sometimes that narrative comes from civilians that have never been downrange, never been in the military, that your PTSD is so bad that you can't, you can't come to this facility, you can't come to this establishment. I, I see it, I see it all the time. They don't see the human, they see every, everything else but the human in. You know, some of my peers in combat, they give a bad name. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Just take it human by human, not broad stereotypes of how we should be. Civilians, please understand that women do serve in the military. So when I park in a veteran parking spot, don't give me the side eye because I'll give you two big eyes and ask you, (laughs) is there a problem today? Um, That's a huge one. But also that our combat experience, it's it's real, right? Um, One of the first female... um, we call them tanks, but military folks don't call them tanks. 
civilians will know it as a tank, right? One of the first tank drivers ever was in a crew two miles down the road from me in Baghdad in 2006. And it's like, you, you badass. Like, I see yeah. you, girl. I see you, you know? And so, but, but the, the beauty of driving a tank, a heavily armed vehicle, is that you're in the fight. You're in that vehicle because people are trying to kill you. That vehicle that you're the first female to drive also signifies there are people out to kill you in this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so my experience is being in flying from different facilities all over Baghdad, all over Iraq, you know, getting up in the air, having gunners with guns, making sure nobody was going to shoot us down. That's the worst seven minute, 20 minute, 40 minute flight ever. You know, there's no luxury in knowing you could be shot down when you hear mortars going around and you're in the air, not knowing if the mortar is coming at you. It's, there's nothing great about looking down to see little kids with little motley faces playing soccer by dead, dead animals. You know, like none, none of that is great to see, especially with the mama heart, right? I would never want my child to be playing in the road, their face, their clothes, all dirty. And they're playing right by dead animals. Just, you know, so there, there are many parts of the female veteran experience that civilians don't want to know about, don't really care to know about, or don't really want to hear. And it makes it really hard for us to show up in all of our story because society has kind of painted it that that's not really what y'all do down there. And I'm like, a body is a body in combat, you know? That's the takeaway. The body is a willing, able body, willing to serve, ready to serve when you're downrange. I, I, I want my civilians to get that better. I would think right now we would be better, but no, it's still a long way to go. Yeah. Gosh. Oh my goodness. I, I can't even, I can't even fathom that just unreal, unreal. And the fact that somebody doesn't believe that just blows my mind and is so sad. I hate that you even experienced that because I know how it feels to be, your feelings aren't validated. And on a scale, the things we've chatted about are so minute compared to what you went through. Like, it's just wild to think that. So absolutely, I love that you're ready to share your story and you're willing to share your story with us. Thank you so much for that. And girl, you are kind of a badass. I told you that last time. You look like a G.I. Jane. I told you that first time and every time I've met you since then, I need to see a picture of you in your outfit. Oh my goodness. Were you, did you have a shaved head then? Funny enough, the first time I shaved my head was in Iraq because we didn't have running water. And I didn't want the sand fleas because they were sending soldiers home. Sand fleas would get embedded into our scalp and start causing these psychological manifestations of symptoms. Oh, it's pretty terrible. So these infections were killing soldiers or changing their brains. Whoa. I was like, oh, it won't be me. So I'll never forget it. I had my soldier. He came back and he was like, (laughs) Specialist Thornton. He was like, you really... Want me to keep shaving your head, Sergeant Clark? I'm like, yes, keep cutting it. You've already cut some. Keep You're cutting like, it. So yeah, yeah. That was the very mm. first time I had this length of hair was was in Baghdad because of necessity. <laughs> what? Because of necessity. And here I am like, oh, your head looks so good. Yeah. <laughs> 
man, absolutely. Yes. I, wow. Like, I feel like I could just ask a million questions. This podcast could go on for like hours. I have so many questions, so much just I can't imagine the things you saw and the things you think about and I love that you pointed that out ironically enough I messaged the guy that was on the podcast about a year ago on the 4th of July and I said how does today make you feel and he said the exact same thing and he said today's not bad however the 17 anniversaries that I think about on this date this date this date this day he's like those are the days that are hard and I wish people understood that and I'm like how can we help get that word out? Because obviously we're not going to know the date you struggle. We're not going to know that on the 12th of August is a hard day for you. But I think the way you worded it is show grace, right? Like just show grace for those people. If we don't show up how you expect us to, or if we don't, aren't feeling it this day, that's okay. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That takes us a long way. Remembering we're human. And when my human heart sees that your human heart is struggling, can we just pause and acknowledge that we're just two humans in the space right now? Right. That is it. The amount of emotional and intellectual humility that we just don't show other people, it's, we've become a very self-centered, self-focused kind of society to where you didn't show up how you're expected to, how I thought you would yep, something must be wrong with you. And there could be something wrong with the person, but instead of being curious, now it's more of a, you're a problem. That's it. Done. Yeah, that stays with the person. It kind of reinforces the narrative that is negative, that negative self-speak. It just kind of reinforces that. When you finally have someone to pause you long enough to say, let's challenge that negative self-speak because you're not a problem. Right. How profound. Right. But it shouldn't take two, three years in your healing journey for someone to tell you that we encounter people every day, Townsend, every day. Why does it take someone that doesn't know you? Yeah, that was his job. But a lot of people miss the mark. A lot of them. Absolutely. I just did a huge talk um, about stress and anxiety. And how I've made it a pact to ask the hard questions because we as a society have become so selfish. So it's, how are you? I'm good. How are you? But it's not really thought about. And that's actually the answer we expect. We don't want people to tell us how we are. We don't have time for that. But when I check in on people, I want to say, how are you really? How was that anxiety you mentioned a few weeks ago? You know, the hard questions kind of break that ice because it is hard, but who does it? If you don't do it, who else is going to do it? So that's a goal of mine. Part of the reason for this podcast is just start conversations, start conversations. Okay. Speaking of that, what are some good resources for veterans? I love that they are coming around. I love that you talked about the vet, like where you went for that. I had not heard of that. So that is amazing. So what are some, what are some places some people could reach out to or look into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the va.gov so www.va.gov is a, an amazing place to start veterans can learn about benefits that they're entitled to right now a big one is the pact p a c t act um, a lot of veterans are getting some of their previously denied uh, service related claims approved for compensation monthly compensation so the va.gov even if you've had terrible experiences with the va 
stay enmeshed in the va.gov website because there's lots and lots and lots of resources on there. There are nonprofits. Uh, the Wounded Warrior Project, for example, is an amazing nonprofit. They work specifically with this generation of combat veterans, so Gulf War veterans, OIF, OEF veterans. They work with them to help with disability claims. They will take them on week-long retreats, them and their partners, um, them and their families. Um, they host local events that veterans and their families can go to. They just keep the veteran engaged, letting the veteran have opportunities to live for free and fun, right? So it's not therapeutic. It's just, hey, be around your peers for one, and let's have a good time. There's no drinking, no drugs, none of that is ever allowed, but it's just a, a way to kind of integrate into society, have fun, but we're doing it in a public place, and we get to work on our skills while we're doing that. Uh, heroes to Heroes is another Heroes. I think the number two, and then Heroes.org is another good resource. It is for combat veterans that have a religious background. That organization takes veterans on an 11-day excursion to Israel, and they have the opportunity to heal any religious or moral injuries. So a lot of people don't realize that they're impacted because their religious beliefs are strongly impacted when they go downrange for war. And that, that's that's a big deal. And so even if it's not a religious, so to speak, reason, like, oh, we fought you know, one of the chaplains there when we were in Iraq was like, yeah, Jesus and them, they live like not even 90 exactly, miles from here, you know, so yeah. like, wow, the Bible right here, you know, so even if it's not that, it could be like, what's the moral injury that I feel like, because I never signed up for war, you know, so that organization is amazing for that, to be able to go to Israel for 11 days free, again, these nonprofits these days are, are really amazing, so if nothing else, a veteran can go on their search engine of choice, mine is Google, and say nonprofits for veterans. Just a very simple search. They'll see a slew of different resources, and many of them are legit. My kids get $300 vouchers every three months to go and do an activity of their choice because it is for military kids. They're like, hey, we know your parents. They look right, right. So here's some money to go do something fun. And so I love the premise of that organization. So for the last year and a half, my kids have had the opportunity to do fun things that I'm not going to come out of. Because a lot of it is stuff that I, one, don't have the money to do, or two, I wouldn't spend because I know it's a fleeting thing. Well, now they get to enjoy those things, you know? Very so cool. many resources, Townsend. Okay. Oh, that makes me feel so good. That's amazing. I had not heard of those. Absolutely. So check those out. You can pause. You can go back. I love it so much. How great. That's so good. Um, man, like I said, I feel like we could talk for hours, Rachel. And I felt like that last time. You're just so great. Thank you not only for taking the time out of your day to chit-chat with us and my listeners, but God, just for serving the country. I mean, I, like I said, you are an elite. I hope you don't ever forget that. So much respect for you. I couldn't do it, and I am happy to announce that to everyone listening. So the fact that you did it and looked good doing it and just some badassery happening. Let's be for real. G.I. Rachel. G.I. Jane Rachel. So all jokes aside, I, I just respect you so much, and I, I appreciate you hopping on here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
you know, I told you the last time and I, and I want you to know how much I appreciate you wanting to have conversations with people, wanting to pull people that might not have a voice that is very large and say, hey, here's an outlet, you trust it, you trust it enough, come on. You know, just giving a voice to conversations that aren't oftentimes said aloud, much less, well, I guess said aloud, but said in a large context, you know, with an audience. That's a brave thing to do. And I hope you never get anybody right. You hate mail or something because of what you're doing and saying, because I never want you to feel discouraged in what you're doing because you're needed, Townsend. Oh, stop it right now. Stop it right now. I'm just telling you what I know. I'm just telling you. No, so I appreciate you. it. I I am not the brave one in this one. The people that come on, just the stories that you guys share, just amazing, amazing. And the lives that they touched. Oh, the emails I get makes it totally worth it. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate that. Guys, we will check in next week. Raisha, thank you. And we'll be in touch, I assure you. Okay. Sounds good. All right. We'll <laughs> see you later. If you'd like to hear the rest of this interview, visit patreon.com slash townsendteammusic. And don't forget, you can also watch the interviews on our YouTube channel at Townsend Team Music YouTube. Okay, guys, if you're in the market to buy or sell, I have the perfect company for you. Clark & Co. Realty is located in the Benton, Bryant, Arkansas area. But they're able to serve you no matter where you're located in the state. They've streamlined the process of buying or selling a home to make it so much easier. They have a team of industry experts that make sure you have access from anything you can think of. I'm talking from local home inspectors to painters to gardeners and so much more just to provide you with the best service possible. They're dedicated to providing the most up-to-date market data in the area. And I think the coolest part is if you go on their website, you can use their easy-to-use fast property search. You can even create a custom market report to see what's active, under contract, and sold in your neighborhood. Their team is made up of caring, knowledgeable professionals that work around the clock to help you with the process of buying and selling your home. So again, if you're in the market to buy or sell, Clark & Co Realty is definitely the company for you. Tell them Townsend sent you. Let's be honest. I think we could all use somebody to talk to every now and then. Healing Path Counseling in Conway, Arkansas is 100% my go-to when it comes to therapy. Wendy Blackwood has more credentials than letters in the alphabet. She's won awards for her outstanding services and has a whole page of board memberships. Basically, she knows what she's doing. She works hard to help equip you with the tools needed to live your best life. She even offers a variety of services including, but not limited to, cognitive behavioral therapy, technology-assisted counseling, relationship counseling, and EMDR. Trust me, I know therapy can be intimidating at first, but let me assure you, Wendy does her best to make you comfortable and find the best solutions and plans for you. Trust me, don't wait to make the call. Give Wendy Blackwood at Healing Path Counseling a call today. Get started on the best version of you.